Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today is Andrew Gradman. Andrew is a tax attorney in Southern California. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited for this, Andrew. I spent a lot of time talking kind of nuts and bolts, tactical. I think we're going to talk a little more theoretical, philosophical. I don't know what the right the right word is, but cultivating a, a mindset, how a lot of investors should be thinking about max saving strategies. I want to open up with, with this question. A lot of folks listening to this, myself included, a lot of times we come across tax savings ideas on the internet from a friend, wherever, that sound just too good to be true. I think by everyone listening has had this happen this week, this month, relatively recently. What do you suggest people do when that happens? Well, there are two answers I often give. One is you should, of course, speak with a tax advisor, whether that's a CPA or someone similar. Um, I had a client come to me and said, he saw a YouTube video that advocated for using the following three states for uh, formation of entities, you know, Delaware or South Dakota, whatever they may be. He says, what do you think? And I said, you know, you shouldn't, if, if you're, you know, if you're going to get your advice from a YouTube video, what am I good for? Um, so that's one response. I think though, more globally, and what's going to be the subject of, of our conversation today is that I think everyone, when they're not speaking with such an advisor, they should cultivate an attitude of healthy skepticism. That's what I want to focus on. How do you, how do you, how do you get into that mindset where you're skeptical when someone approaches you with some kind of a tax uh, concept? And I would say the way you do that is by looking to a wrong and a dangerous misconception that a lot of people have when they approach, when they think about tax advice and the way tax advice is given. Okay, a, a wrong and a dangerous misconception. Let's let's dive into that. You piqued my curiosity. What is the wrong and dangerous misconception? The misconception, uh, which is sort of exemplified by that YouTube video, and then, is that people think that folks like me and our colleagues, tax professionals, that we just were like the dragon in the Lord of the Rings. We just sit on a pile of loopholes. Because if you think that's what we do, then of course you believe that some person on YouTube could have stolen one of those the dragon's loopholes and, and, and now wants to share it with the, the public. Um, it's understandable that people have this expectation uh, because it, it certainly is true that the wealthier you are, the more you're able to afford expensive advice and that expensive advice converts into some sort of tax savings that you know we learn that corporations pay 0% of their corporate income the inference is really begging to be uh, made. So, but then people say, okay, so it must be loopholes. Well, I'd say, uh, I'm gonna acknowledge the view before turning away from it. I've given the example of, of, of what we see being done in the corporate taxpayers paying zoo, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and look, tax policymakers, when they see that happening, they their number one concern is the legitimacy of the tax system. They say if the public sees people getting away with not paying a lot, the public is going to lose faith in the tax system. 
you know, when I took my LLM uh, class, the, the example that this was given to me was during the 1986 Tax Reform Act. The, the congressional uh, his, uh, legislative record contains that language. It's like, we, we need to pass re tax reform because Americans are losing faith in the fairness of our tax system. So that's that's a, a perception that I think is fair for people to have these days. Um, other places where this is fair is to you know acknowledge that there are things that may feel like loopholes, and I I use that word very cautiously because you don't imagine for a minute that my peers we use the word loophole. It's not a real word. Um, Professor Heather Field had an article where she called it you know the the, the equivalent of, of calling uh, a bully calling someone a name on a playground. It has no content to it. Um, but um, there are tax expenditures. There are, there are, there are exceptions and uh, subsidies woven into the tax code. And certainly if you know about say, you know, bonus depreciation, if you want to call it a loophole, fine, but it, it, it can also be rationalized as a subsidy towards um, the manufacturers of, of depreciable goods, uh, making, Subsidy, you know, subsidy toward the sales price of their goods. It's a coupon distributed by the government. Um, you know, retirement planning. We all use our our four hundred and one ks and and such uh, to great uh, ends, and we're doing it because the government wants us to save, and and that's all legitimate stuff. Fine. I'm trying to push back to something at, at the opposite extreme. I'm trying to push back at a caricature, which I often encounter when I meet my own clients that they have of my profession. Um, they, uh, it's a misconception and I'm here to, to bust the myth about what expensive lawyers actually provide their clients. And so, so what is the actual misconception, Andrew? You said, I think you said wealthier taxpayers, they're often getting, um, better results because they've got access to better tax attorneys. Maybe, maybe I'm uh, putting words in your mouth here, but I think that's, uh, that's certainly what a lot of people think, and I, I think that's what I what I heard you uh, what I heard you say, or at least in allude to. This. So, what's the what is the misconception then? If that's true, if that's true that that wealthier taxpayers are getting better advice because they can afford it, what's the misconception? Well, I'm going to say this very politely, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but one way of 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 breaking down that myth is to say they're paying more for this advice, but it's not necessarily better advice. It's not necessarily good advice. Um, it, you'll sometimes see cases where if you look intellectually honestly at the advice that is being given by my peers, by me, um, my heroes, all of us, sometimes it's not good advice. Um, and, and I mean that in this specific sense that sometimes you look at the guidance we're telling our clients to do and if you were to be very neutral not be biased by all of the forces that shape the client relationship. Maybe that's wanting to earn the fee, wanting to please the client, not wanting to disappoint, wanting to be a lawyer or an advocate. And if you strip all that away and just say, is this gonna work? Um, you would say, oh, and I don't think a tax court, I don't think a tax court's gonna buy that one. I'm saying that I, I, I think that there's a lot of tax advice that has a veneer of legitimacy that gets talked about. Um, and um, I'm going to jump to a few examples. Um, I have three in mind. W one of them, some of you may have heard of, in the estate planning context, the idea that after um, 
there's been a sale of assets that causes the assets to be removed from the uh, taxpayer's estate. Nevertheless, the, 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 there's still eligibility for a step up in basis um, after that sale. Um, for those of you who've studied this topic a bit, you should feel why that's weird because the idea is, hey, I thought that you'd make a choice. Either you, when you die, you get a big things that are in your estate or you get the thing out of your estate to avoid estate tax and you avoid that tax but then you sacrifice the basis step up it for many of us it's 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 intuitive and it's a fundamental law of nature of the universe that you know you have to sacrifice something you either you either improve your income tax performance at the expense of the state tax performance or vice versa and there are i mean the people who are associated there's a great prominent outspoken about it They're, you know, Jonathan Blotmacher is one of the great, great, greatest estate planning attorneys who's ever been in existence in history, hero of mine, um, is has been an advocate for for the a position that says you can have your cake and eat it too. You can get assets out of your estate and get a basis step up. And um, why am I mentioning him in this context then when I when I'm speaking of advice which is maybe not so good? Um, as I'm going to explain, you know, I got a, I got an outline in my head and I'm already violating it. But what I would say in this case is the, 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 the uh, Internal Revenue Service released a revenue ruling earlier this year when they finally opined on this question after decades of silence. And they wrote basically an essay and they said, we've considered it. We, ex we understand the arguments in that, th that the proponents are making. And here's why we don't agree. And here's why when we litigate matters like this, we're not going to accept those positions. And then what shot me is that in the tax press, the advocates for this position continue to defend it. And that I think I think for a lot of us professionals, we, we scratched our heads. It's like, isn't it time to give up? And what I took away from that experience was that when we tax professionals talk to each other, we have two modes of speaking and we're not always very clear with each other which one we're using. One is the question of, is this a good idea? And that's as lay people in the audience, you know, you also can understand, is this a good idea? Should I do this thing? But our profession also has another mode of communication, which is the language of tax opinions, which has figurative speech like, is there substantial authority for this position? Is there a reasonable basis? You know, substantial authority is a tax opinion that tax lawyers are often asked to write. And when it is produced and when it is supportable, it can get people out of, out of, um, out of penalties if they should be proven to have made a mistake. But the threshold definition of, of, of substantial authority is less than 50%. Less than 50%. You can get to that opinion and still think that it's more likely than not that you're wrong. And so my gloss on this dialogue that I've been witnessing this last year between professionals is that we haven't been agreeing on terms. Are we trying to decide whether this is a good idea? Or are we trying to decide whether this is a minimally not bad idea? Um, and if I think if the public appreciated that about our dialogues, they may lose patience with us and say, okay, guys, I'm not here to, you know, it, you're telling me I could make this huge investment, make this huge transfer of assets. And then the government would say, you screwed up, you owe tax, but you're not going to owe penalties. And maybe the consolation is, okay, I rolled the dice, you know, I got to, I got a hedge 
where if I didn't get caught, I wouldn't owe taxes. And if I do get caught, I do owe taxes. So it was a worthwhile gamble. Some people view it that way. But for some people, if they pursue the investment and then they get caught, they'll not have the liquidity to pay the tax because the, from, from them, they're going to spend the money. Yeah. And, and so it's like, it's like, it's not very considerate to them to be speaking in terms of substantial authority and penalties when this is going to be a life-changing burden. I've spoken at great length. And that was only one of my three examples. So I'll let you take, take me from here. It's, it's, it's interesting, the, the idea of, of what success is, right? A lot of times success means uh, not getting audited within the statute of limitations, right? Or, or getting audited, but, but it's not brought up. Yeah, I've I've heard you talk, I think, in a in a different context about kind of contrasting the advice that, that lawyers give sometimes or the calculations that lawyers do sometimes with uh medical professionals, where it's you've got like this this huge database of of results uh that a medical professional can rely on when they're recommending a treatment and say you've got a 20% chance or a 70% chance. Uh, and you can't really, well, you can't do that for a couple of reasons as a, a tax attorney. I don't think you're allowed to, but you also don't necessarily have the, uh, the large sample size of, of, of data, right? Um, I'm so glad you met. Can, can I jump in? Yeah, please. Um, so let's, let's first visit what I, I have, I, I will talk about this for the rest of my life, which is that we have these opinion standards. And um, in your program notes, I'm going to share a document which everyone can read. This was a joke document that was released uh, in 2005, which is a spoof on the ridiculous opinion standards we have. It has everything from 0% to 100%, where 100% is, is will, 99% is will at the ivory soap level, and then it goes on down, it's just outstanding. 10% is it might work, but it won't. That's my, that's my favorite one. I say that to my colleagues all the time. It might work, but it won't, which goes back to the uh, topic we were discussing a second ago. But but what we are getting at and is, is the following. If you're an oncologist and you have a patient who, come, who presents to you with a certain set of, of characteristics, you can, you can give them a percentage about their status. And by doing so, you're giving them a lot of, you're doing good for that person. People, I'm told, I'm not an expert on this, but people want to know, you know, so they can make plans. Do I write a will or do I, you know, have another shot? Um, and if you're a CEO of a company, you also want to know that. So if there's 100 lawsuits being filed against you, you also want to know, you want to have like a weighted average, uh, risk average, where, okay, I'm going to put buckets and each lawsuit goes in a bucket. And based on that, we can project our, our balance sheet for the next 10 years. As tax lawyers and professionals, we are limited in a few ways for that. First of all, we have Circular 230, which says you're not allowed to take into account the likelihood of audit or the likelihood of an issue coming up on audit. And if the CEO of the company had been told that, or if the, you know, if the uh, oncologist had been told, you know, give me an estimate, but wear a blindfold and don't look at all the data, like, he'd be like, that's ridiculous. I can't do that. So, and yet, and so that really handicaps us. And yet we go about, and we still, you'll hear professionals, my colleagues and peers, and we'll say, hey, you get a I'll give you a 70% chance on this one. And my obsession and, and my life's goal is to stop us from saying those numbers. Um, be, and, and, and I'm gonna give you, there are many reasons why, I'm gonna give you one particular one. So today we're recording this, am I allowed to say the date, you know, I'm Fidel Castro with the newspaper, it's 831, August 31. Um, in today's tax notes, there was a beautiful uh, discussion about private placement life insurance. 
And within that, there was a beautiful discussion of the Weber case, which was a very important case on the subject of um, investor control. And you could say on, on what constitutes the, the proper boundary of investor control before um, you go down too far. And I, I think it's interesting that there was a, a group of, of PPLI attorneys and, 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 and representatives who say, oh, you know, we can learn a lot from that case because based on what the judge said and based on the, on the nature of the egregious behavior of that particular taxpayer, it gives us a sense of where we should draw lines. My thing is, no, it does not. Very rarely does it tell. I mean, unless there's a holding which in which the judge says, I'm going to give you a holding that's going to cover future cases, and this is the line, and you know, here's how we're going to define it. But that I don't believe, in my opinion, my humble opinion, that wasn't there. But people keep saying, go to their clients, and they say, you know, Weber, that guy sent thousands of emails to his advisors. So as long as you don't send thousands of emails, you should be okay. And I often say, look, we're, we don't know what's in the mind of the IRS in these cases. It would be a completely legitimate litigation strategy, and it's one that's tried and true with litigation around the world, where first you do a sample case where you know you're going to win, and you establish the principle that the rule of law, in this case investor control, is, is vibrant. But then you don't be like, I'm going to retreat now and never file more cases again. Hmm. Now you say, strategy step two, we're going to, now we're going to test the limits of that line, and we're going to go find people and make examples of them. And the fact is, I'm not saying that's true in this case. I don't know it's true in this case. What I'm saying is the other lawyers don't know that either. And so this all comes back to, to the question you've raised about, you know, us giving 70%, 60%, 50%. 50%. Um, as you've heard me say in that other forum, like, they didn't teach me how to do that in law school. There's no class on converting tax cases into percentages. Um, so anyway, you can tell I'm very indignant, but that's my feeling on that. Yeah. Well, there's, I, I think there's a lot more, there's probably a lot more gray area than people like to think, right? Um, the, the tax code is how many pages long, thousands of pages long, but, but somehow there's still um, a lot of gray area. Um, but so, so what's, what's wrong, Andrew, with, with uh, tax attorneys pushing the envelope for their clients? I mean, after all, they're, they're advocates for their, for their client, right? What's wrong with, with, being a little bit aggressive or pushing the envelope or, or taking some of these risks, even if you can't say it's, you know, if you can't say it's X percent, but you can certainly do that math in your head. What's, what's wrong with that? Yeah, that's a great a deep question. And that's certainly what people ask me when I have this conversation with them. Um, and so I'd say a few things. First of all, um, I'm a regulated professional. And, and no, let me, let me, let me step even further back, which is, Let's look at how tax opinions work. This, one of the major services I provide mm -hmm. is that someone could come to me, and as I've alluded to earlier today, um, if I supply an opinion that says blah, 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 then if you have reasonable cause, if my opinion is written in a way that would persuade you and you rely on it, it gives you reasonable cause. And in so doing, it could get you out of a large number of accuracy-related and, and similar penalties under, under the code. What's worth thinking about there is that in a manner of speaking, there's a piece of the substantive law, whether a person should pay penalties, which has been delegated to me. Mm -hmm. If I write an opinion which causes you to think what you're doing is okay, then I have taken the ability of the IRS 
to impose the penalty away from them, it makes me into a sort of a piece of the administrative state. And, hmm. and in so doing, and, and, and the, the IRS and Treasury and Congress, they this, and it's an amazing burden to, to take and give to the advocates for the taxpayer. And so in order to regulate misuses of that, they create Circular 230. And Circular 230 says, look, we know we've given you all this rights. We're giving you a dual role as an advocate for the client, but also as a, a, an instrument of government. And so we're going to regulate, and you better not take advantage of it. And so it's a painful role for me to be in as a circular 230 regulated professional, because I also want to be a lawyer and I, and the clients come to me and I want to give them everything. I want to say, here's an opinion that's going to get you out of penalties. But I, at the same time, I have to say, I'm not going to do it. And um, it's a, it's a, it, 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 it's frustrating for, for clients. And then, and then I often say it creates a kind of a rivalry, which is very painful because I often have to compare myself to an insurance company. And it's like, you know, it was like someone comes to me and says, I like a policy of an insurance from you. And then and then I have my malpractice insurance, which is like Lloyd's of London. It's the reinsurance company. And so if I screw up Lloyd's of London, a.k.a. my malpractice carrier will will make them whole. People are saying, I, I, I'd like I'd like a piece of your insurance, your malpractice insurance to stand behind the following claims. That's that's what it is. Well, if, if, if you were in my shoes, they'd be like, well, I'm going to underwrite you first. I'd like to know if you're a smoker. I'd like to know if you pick skydive. I'd like to know if you have other risky activities in your life. And yet people come and they say, but I just want your opinion. And I said, well, the opinion is for you. All of the other crap I have to do around the opinion is, is for me and for circular, is, 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 for, is for my malpractice carrier and it's for circular 230. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess the bottom line of what you've just said is, well, hey, aren't you an advocate for the client? And then I would say, you know what? Not thanks to Circular 230, I'm not. I'm a, I, I, I work for the government too, sorry. Hmm. Yeah, that's, so that, that's interesting. So, I, so how can folks kind of reconcile those, those ideas uh, in their head? I mean, I think of a tax attorney, a tax lawyer as, this is someone who's gonna help me, who's gonna help me save money on taxes. Um, and they think, well, this person also also works for the government. I know that you don't, but you know, you kind of, um, in in a way, some of the onus has been shifted of the administrative administrative state has been shifted onto you, as you just mentioned. How can people how can people reconcile those ideas? So that's great. So I will pivot to sort of how I think of my role, and and hopefully that will be responsive to your question. So. I think of myself as an ambassador between two mm -hmm. professionals that people already have in their lives. People have a deal team that may be themselves and maybe uh, lawyers, whoever they've got, who are looking at the price tags on things, but they're not pre pre-tax prices. And they're trying to maximize the pre-tax amounts because that's the skill set they have. And then they also have a team of people who I'm gonna just call loosely return preparers. Who, who, who then calculate for them and, and present the returns and, and give them a number they were not expecting, which is the after-tax amount. I think of myself as an ambassador between those two functions, where I say to the lawyers who are doing the deal, hey, have you considered what the return preparer is going to have to do years, you know, next year? And then I go to the return preparer and I say, do you understand that in order to get the maximum benefits, you need to fill out the form in a particular way? A few things that you'll see that come with that, you know, inherent in that viewpoint. I, I don't view myself, especially as an income tax 
focused uh, professional. I don't view myself as a standalone professional. People mm-hmm. really don't come just to me and say, hi, I'm a muggle, which is my polite term for uh, clients. And I um, would like your services. What often happens is they're either the CPA, return preparer, excuse me, the EA, whoever will have that conversation or more often the deal lawyer will say, I'm about to close a deal, but I actually would like you to, to evaluate it with me. Mm-hmm. Um, this comes, one of my favorite analogies is, is that um, I say uh, a tax lawyer is like a, a, an anesthesiologist. Uh, if, if, you have, if you see an anesthesiologist practicing by themselves without the assistance or without assisting other physicians, they're probably yeah. actually a drug dealer. Um, <laughs> but because, but, but you know, anesthesiologists ought to be in the operating room with surgeons. And that is how I view myself as an income tax planner. It's like, you know, I, I don't enjoy just being out in the void without being assisting uh, some other professional as an, as an ambassador, as I said. Um, another analogy to use, um, I, I like to use thermodynamic and scientific uh, analogies. So it's like, you know, some client says to me, um, I want to I want to generate a lot of electricity, but I don't want to have to burn any fuel. And I'm like, you know, it's an income tax. The corollary being, if you, you're not going to pay tax if you don't have any income, but if you want to reduce your income, generally speaking, income tax, you generally have to reduce your income. Like that's the easiest advice I give these people. I was like, probably earn less, Just earn less, earn, earn less, you pay less taxes. But, but in reality, you know, I, I go to people and I say, look, um, you need to have a waterfall before you can generate electricity, before you can put um, a series of uh, spinning things, whatever those are called, uh, turbines. You need, you need to have water falling off a cliff and entropy has to increase. And in your case, that has to mean in- income tax has to be generated for you to have income, you know, turning, turning it around. Sure. Uh, that's Those are some good, I, I like both of those analogies. Um, and I'm going to use that the dealer one with the, the anesthesiologist because they're not around other uh, uh, if they're not around other other professionals. Um, so so surely, I mean, we've talked there's there's okay, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of gray area. Uh, there's no definitive data set. but there's there's lots of stuff that's that's fairly cut and dry, right? where there's there's not a lot of gray area and it's fairly straightforward and you can be extremely confident that surely you're not operating entirely in in a gray area where you're just handicapping the odds of things. Right. So certainly that's true. Um, what I described there is 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 probably a description of the sort of the fantastical loopholes that people often describe. I mean, I'll just I'll just touch on two more, maybe not in as much depth as the other ones. Monetized installment sales and, and yeah. plans. Both of those are candidates for um, being listed transactions as we speak. Um, both of those are, are items which I studied in great detail because they're they're kind of fascinating. And I mean, with monetize with uh, multi pension plans, um, you know, I'll just I'll just comes down to this: people would sit in the room with the person who may be promoting it, whatever, and they'd say, you know, it seems too good to be true. And mm-hmm. then the response they'd get is, yes, it seems too good to be true, but it is true. And 
okay, I guess there are some features in the tax code that are that way because it is after all a subjective statement. But it turns out that when you look at the commentary to either the US or the OECD treaty, I'm not remembering as we speak, but I think it's the US treaty. It says that there is certain language in the treaty that lets them change definitions to avoid an absurd result. And I'm like, this is the definition of an absurd result. If it's too good to be true, but it is true, then that clause gets kicked in. And that's the clause that got kicked in when the CAA, the um, Competent Authority Agreement got uh, passed, I think about a year ago, and activating a, a clause that redefined the definition of a pension fund and shutting down the purported loophole. It was like, it was too good to be true. And that was the fatal flaw. But, and then there's monetized installment sales. Okay. Uh, but you asked, I think you're inviting me to pivot though and say, okay, what about the good stuff? Like, do tax lawyers provide any value or do we just make it up? Um, I will say as follows. Um, uh, another analogy, which I think is, is, is a good one to, 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 to take down now, take to use now is I often say that I, I invite my clients to do a fire drill of an audit, which is to say, if you're audited, you're going to get all these document demands and the IRS is going to read them. And so I invite my clients to produce all the same documentation to imagine three years in the future and imagine all the documents we're going to need to have and they're going to be read and the kind of statements you're going to provide. Then I read. Them. And to me, that is where I provide the, the greatest value of all is when I gather and read and assimilate and summarize and characterize what is going to be the, the, the rump of the audit three years from now. And I often find in the course of doing so, hey, you, you didn't you didn't check a box on a form you were supposed to check. And that's, hey, that's critical. That sounds late silly, but that you lose a lot of money that way. I don't do a lot of opportunity zones. You can't imagine how many people fail to file form 8996 for their opportunity fund or fail to elect on 8949 the investment. And then they have to spend $12,000 plus legal fees on a private letter ruling, which only works if you have, and it goes out the window. It's just a waste. And that's the value you get from having me just read your documents. It's not a loophole. That's that's just making sure you did what you were supposed to do. Um, it's tremendous value. Yeah. So I want to go back to the the question I asked at, at the start um, about when, when people come across something that's, that's too good to be true. And, you know, one of the answers you gave that everyone hears is, well, consult with your tax professional. And everyone's heard that a million times, right? But they don't think about, well, what does that actually mean? How do I, how do I best consult with a tax professional? How do I best engage someone like this and, and, and get the most out of them? It's not, that doesn't mean you just fill out a contact form and say, what do you think about this, right? So how should, how should folks listening to this, if they're, you know, they're, they're a high net worth inv investor, they're a business owner, um, whatever it may be, how should they, uh, you know, it's funny, we hear that phrase all the time, consult with your tax professional, but now I'm thinking like, well, what does that actually mean? Um, like, like how can people get the most out of you, Andrew, or how can people get the most out of whoever their tax professional is? Great. I would say be your own devil's advocate. Um, don't merely assume that the tax professional is going to do that because you're sitting on all the facts and you're presenting the facts to that person. 
And if you present the facts to them in an incomplete way, and that leads them to say, yeah, yeah, go ahead, do the thing, take the deduction, then when push comes to shove and you're audited, that IRS, I mean, the IRS is not going to say, oh, well, he said, they're going to audit that relationship. They're going to say, what's your reasonable cause? And you're going to say, I told him these facts, he gave me this advice. And the IRS is going to say, oh, material facts, you held back facts. Um, I think you should, um, instead of, uh, you've heard me talk about what I loosely call an adversarial relationship between the client and the, and, and the advisor. And I would say, help your advisor perceive the weak points of your argument. Um, and, and, you know, there's, um, speaking of too good to be true, and I've, I've used that in the context of multi pension plans, but it also pops up in the 66, 64 regs, I think for the definition of negligence, where um, it says, um, you know, like let, let's suppose you do a whole bunch of work and uh, you get a check for $10,000 and then you get a 1099 for $1,000. If you just sit on that 1099 and say, well, I guess that's how it works. That's too good to be true. You should have known. And that is not going to be a defense because, you know, the IRS, the IRS and Treasury assume some degree of common sense on your part. And I, I, you know, all so many clients are like, oh, I'm just a, I'm just a money manager with a couple Ivy League degrees. But I don't know anything about taxes. Like, that's not going to cut it for the IRS. Um, great. Um, Andrew, this has been this has been fascinating. Um, I, I'm going to cut you loose here in just a minute. Um, any other points you want to make here? I've, I've really enjoyed picking your brain a little bit and kind of being uh hopefully it's been helpful for the audience here to be on the the other side of this and, and think about how uh how the next attorney thinks about this relationship all i would say is i know that in the past and in the future you're going to continue to feature professionals or, or people with with very fascinating ideas and i I, mm-hmm. I i want everyone to keep an open mind to those two i don't want to seem to be denigrating that every every idea deserves to be heard with an open mind um, and all I'm here to say is um, be, as you go forward, be your own devil's advocate. Just, just your skepticism is going to reward you. That's all. Yeah. I think that's a great point. It's quite true in, in all walks of life, a little bit of, of healthy skepticism, not just when it comes to, to tax saving ideas, but uh, I think a little bit of skepticism is, is good in a lot of ways. Andrew, last question for you. Where can folks go to find more about you or if they want to get in touch with you? If you Google my name, then you'll find gradmantax.com. And um, that's the way to do it. Okay, awesome. I'll put that in the show notes along with a couple of the documents that that Andrew referenced. I'm going to go read this uh, this document with the the joke document that you said came out in 2005 with 100 down to 10. percent And what was the 10 percent, Andrew? It, it might work, but it won't. It might work, but it won't. I used that okay. in the this week. Yeah, it kills me. Okay, I'm going to try using that uh, on my wife um, when we're we're having a conversation in the the context of a marriage. I'll let you know. I'll let you know how that goes. Um, Andrew, thanks for joining me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. A pleasure. Uh, Have a good day. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 